Welcome back, my friends, to the Mail Right Real Estate Agent Podcast Show. This is episode 109, and I'm glad to be back. I missed you last week, and uh, Jonathan did a great job taking over the show. And I want to uh, introduce Jonathan in a minute, but first, I want to get to our fantastic guest that we have. Uh, this gentleman is not only one of the number one lenders in San Diego County, but happens to be a longtime networking partner and friend of mine. Uh, and I do most of my business with him, so I thought it was time to get a good mortgage expert on here and share some knowledge. Jason Gordon, say hello to our audience and maybe give us a quick introduction of yourself. Will do. First of all, thanks for having me and thanks in advance, folks, for your time and attention today. My name is Jason Gordon. I'm a branch manager and senior mortgage loan officer with Amerifirst Financial here in San Diego with local offices in both Carmel Valley and Mission Valley. Um, I spend about 90% of my workflow originating mortgage loans, about 10% managing a staff uh, within my branch. And I'm also a registered speaker with the Performance School of Real Estate. So if my name looks familiar or I look familiar, you may see me speaking and uh, doing workshops for you either at your office or at the Career Compass Real Estate Seminar. Awesome. And uh, Jonathan, I want to let you introduce yourself and tell the folks a little about you. Oh, well, hi there, folks. I'm the founder of MailRite. It's a software service that helps you get more leads from Facebook and from email marketing. Back to you, Thomas. Thank you, sir. And I'm Thomas J. Nelson. I'm a San Diego residential realtor where I'm never too busy for your referrals. And you can find me on my website at thomasjnelsonrealtor.com or, of course, on social media. You'll find me mostly on Facebook and LinkedIn. All right. Well, this is long overdue, bud. I'm glad you're joining us today. Um, you know, and I, I, for better or for worse, I always uh, let people know, especially when I'm referring you, that the reason I refer you first and foremost is the way I met you, and that is as a lender. It's not because we're good friends, and so I throw all my business your way, because if you weren't able to deliver the goods, I wouldn't refer you. And so our friendship was born of a business relationship and a networking relationship that developed over years of helping clients and uh, some challenging situations. We went through the great recession, uh, the great depreciation of our market together. And unlike a lot that bailed and got out, you and I weathered the storm. And that was one of the things that solidified uh, you as a professional that I go to now. Um, and we, we had a nice friendship that came out of this relationship. But I want to start with some questions that uh, may, uh, for some, may be a little basic. Others, um, this might be the first time they're hearing this. Uh, we'll go through some more advanced questions as we go. Um, I want to first talk about one of the number one questions I get from my clients, and that is, well, if I'm rate shopping or if I'm shopping lenders, uh, because maybe I refer you to a client, but they still want to vet you out against other, you know, they want to go online and do that turbo mortgage or whatever, you know, all the all the non-relational ones, um, they get worried about multiple lenders pulling their credit. And can you speak on that? Like, at what point does that damage their credit? And, and how much leeway do the credit reporting agencies give people? It's a great question. I appreciate you asking that. The reality is there's not a, a simple short answer. And I will often say it just depends really on the situation. So if you look at the algorithm that the credit bureaus use to create a score, the portion of the score that's actually going to be influenced by a credit inquiry is 10% of the weighted average. So it's a small 
portion of the overall weighted average. However, it really depends on how thick the credit profile is. When I say thick, it's more of a reference to how many trade lines or active accounts are on the actual credit report that are reporting. The, the reality is somebody who has a thick, long credit history has a slightly smaller impact for a credit inquiry as opposed to somebody who really has no credit. So there's something to be said for kind of getting your experience with credit. It does have several benefits, including credit inquiries. But with that said, I would, no matter who you are, I would limit the credit inquiries to maybe two or three at the max, just okay. to keep your scores in mind. Because it, it's not necessarily that you're going to get approved or not approved, but it could be a, a difference in your rate quote if you drop below certain benchmarks on your credit score. And those inquiries can be just enough to bring you down to the next credit tier, which could hurt your rate quote. What, what, um, and I realize this might be subjective, but um, in general, what, what kind of a hit do you take? Like, like if I'm at 750 and I shop five lenders, uh, what's the result of that on my credit score? What's it going to drop to in a, on an average? You know, there's not really an agreed upon number to give you. I'd say with five inquiries, you're starting to venture into a danger zone. Um, you know, if I said 10 points, I wouldn't want to be quoted on that. Hey, it only moved nine or Hey, it moved 11. Right. It, it again, I'm, I'll defer to my previous answer, uh, both in the 10% weighted average, as well as just limiting your credit, uh, inquiries to two or three at the max. And remember too, that direct lenders and brokers have the ability to use their credit report to shop around for you. So you don't have to get. You know, when working with a direct lender, I can be shopping dozens of lenders with your one credit report, where if you went to some of these, and I won't say companies' names by, you know, by names, but some of these... Uh, a brick and mortar. Some of these companies that yeah. like to sell you as a lead to multiple lenders who all pull your right. credit upon receipt of your lead, you can click one button and have five or six credit inquiries, and that can really oh, work. Wow. Okay. Well, and that's the other advantage that I've found working with you is, you know, I have people that say, well... Um, well, I'm going to go with my bank because I bank there and they're going to give me the best rate. And my thought is, well, you know, based on what are you assessing this? And also, uh, do you understand that they only have really one product to sell their product versus a, a broker like you that can go and shop all the banks for your clients and find the best rate, not just the best one within their wheelhouse? Yeah. It, so, the, the term that we use in the industry, we call these platforms. And so okay. let's say you are a borrower, you're seeking to obtain a mortgage loan and you want to find out how that money can be delivered on your behalf to escrow. You have three options. We'll call them A, B, and C. A, we'll just put all banks and credit unions into that one bucket. B, we'll just use for brokers, B for brokers, and then C, we'll use for direct lenders. I've worked for each of these platforms so I can speak you know, firsthand as to the pros and cons. And I want to start by saying I don't, I'm not looking to disparage any other competitors when I say this, but most of us begin our careers in platform A, in a bank or a credit union. They're pretty easy to be hired into. They give you great training. Everyone recognizes a logo on your business card. You get that warm, fuzzy feeling that people are already in your lobby. And they walk over across the lobby to your desk. And they sit down and apply for a loan. The challenge is when I worked for one of those banks, and I won't use any names, but they really like horses and stagecoaches. Um, even if I was driving to work and I saw lower rates posted in the window, if I was to tell a client at my desk that lower rates existed elsewhere, I could be terminated on the spot because that bank spent a lot of money to get those clients in that lobby and in my desk. 
My job was to sell them. And if I knew my rates were higher, well, I was supposed to just give extra good service. Well, the, and we should all be giving good service. So that should not be a distinguishing factor as professionals. Right. Okay. Um, I can elaborate uh, B and C if you want, but I don't want to give you too long of an answer. So I'll, I'll defer to you on that one. Yeah. Maybe just a, you know, the, the, the quick 30 second uh, explanation of both. Sure. Well, so B and C, so B the broker and C direct lender, we can shop around in both of these platforms. So we imagine a horse race and metaphorically speaking, we, we want the winning horse. We have multiple horses in the race. Uh, brokers and direct lenders can both shop around. The difference between the two of them is that brokers normally will do the processing, identify the winning lender, and turn that file over to that winning lender to do the underwriting, loan documents, and funding, where you can see how we lose control of the file through three very important milestones. Or a direct lender does all four milestones in-house. And so it's kind of like this, the old, the old uh, um, nursery rhyme, this one's too hot, this one's too cold, this one's just right. We can shop around and keep everything done in-house so we have the same staff working on each and every loan file. So there's continuity and better communication. Okay. Um, well, that, that makes a little more sense than actually, I appreciate you breaking it down. Um, so I want to talk about, um, well, we're talking about going to a lender primarily to either purchase a property or refi. And uh, obviously credit score plays into that. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Dave Ramsey and Dave Ramsey, you know, he's famously quoted as saying, you, you know, uh, building your credit is a myth we're suckered into because cash can buy stuff too. And, and the reporting company's got us so fixated on credit scores. But the reality is that if we are, in fact, without the cash and we need a loan, um, the credit scores play into the type of loan or the, the, the cost of the loan or the rate of the loan. So can you speak on like the brackets of credit scores? Like what, what would be considered excellent, average or below average? Sure. Well, different loan programs have different influences on what uh, will influence an approval or and or a rate quote. If we look at traditional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac conforming or conventional loans, they have tiers as in T-I-E-R, credit tiers of every 20 points where your score ends up will put you into a different tier. So for example, you have a 680 to 699 tier, a 700 to 719 tier, a 720 to 739 tier, etc. Typically, when you reach 740, you're in that 740 plus tier, you're in the best rate quote you can get for most programs. Some, some programs will go with 760 and some will even give a little bit higher considerations depending on how high your score is. But I'd say when you're above 760, you're kind of in that walk on water phase when it comes to how you're, you're judged by the banks. Okay. And then just, you know, talking to me like I'm a freshman in high school, uh, my credit score play is what what creates my credit score as far as what are they the major things they're looking at um when when they're creating my credit score well it's funny you mentioned high school because i've actually taught many graduating seniors at scripps ranch high school how this whole thing works that was my way of you know community uh, helping out with community service and teaching these freshly 18 year old um citizens, <laughs> the impact yeah. of credit and how not to make the mistakes that their parents and grandparents generations have made. So uh, you're really hitting the uh, striking a chord with me there. So the main influences are payment history, which kind of makes sense, right? If you're not paying your small debts back on time, why should we believe you're gonna pay a big debt back on time? But almost equally as important, when we isolate revolving accounts like credit cards, revolving means that you can charge them up, pay them down, then reuse that money on an ongoing basis where your balances are in relation to your limits. 
the percentage of utilization, if you want to call it that, is a major factor on what, how your credit score can be, um, you know, how it will be impacted. And I, I get people all the time, hey, I, why is my score a 640? I never missed a payment in my life. Yeah, but you're maxed out on every credit card that you have. That's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, but the good thing about that, though, is if they have excess cash, we can run software programs called What If Simulators, where we can actually see if we can alter certain data on the credit report, such as paying down um, portions or all, or all of certain credit card debts, we can do what's called a rapid rescore and within about a week change that score accordingly. So it's a case by case basis. I don't want to make any across the board right. claims, but we've had some amazing success with those. Well, and I know just from working with you, I mean, you've done um, some of my refis over the years and um, they, these are conversations we've had because, you know, um, you know, I'm in the real estate industry, but I'm, I'm a realtor. I, I don't work in the loans. Uh, I work with loans uh, and people getting loans, but I, I defer to you for a lot of this info. And uh, like, for example, uh, if I have some high balances, like you mentioned, uh, it's not automatic that I should go and pay those down. Um, it because of what you just mentioned, right? I mean, it, would it be better that I speak to you before I go taking action on my credit? Um, because I could be depleting cash that you're, is more important to you than the line of credit. I'm so glad you brought that up. I really am. There are so many assumptions that are made when it comes to credit. And so many people are taking advice from some stranger on Google or some coworker that has no experience other than the house they <laughs> bought three years ago and ignoring yeah. a mortgage professional that does this for a living day in and day out. And Thomas, you know me enough to know that I'm not just putting in 40 hour weeks. I mean, this is my life and I do study credit score and algorithms. I, I understand how this stuff works and we have access to these software programs that make us look even smarter when we can actually <laughs> see how certain impacts are going to have. So with respect to all the assumptions out there, and even with respect to what would be common sense, right? Well, I'm going to pay this high interest credit card down first. My advice is, remember, when you are evaluated for a mortgage loan, it's a snapshot of how you look right now, not how you once looked in the past or how you might look in the future. It's, it's how you look now. So right. my focus is really getting you as cleaned up as possible, so to speak, so that you get the best favorable consideration for both approval and rate quotes by altering your score at that time that we're actually seeking to obtain your loan. When all the smoke clears and you have those keys in your hand, yeah, go ahead and pay off the high or, or different debts if you wanted to. But our strategy is not so much, you know, when we're creating that loan, we want to create that loan so you get the best of the best at that time. And right. we can still give you advice post-closing uh, if and when applicable. Well, see, and that's something that I stress to my clients because um, one of the things I like working with you versus some of these transactional lenders that if you're not ready to go, they have no interest in you. But I can send clients to you that think they're ready, but it turns out financially they're not, but you can set them up with a plan as much as let's get the strategy that best serves getting this loan done. But then if there's other things you want to do to improve your situation after the fact, you're also a resource for that, that, Hey, here's how we go forward. Um, maybe with a new budget or a new plan. Um, so with that in mind, and I know this might be another, it depends answer, but, um, when it comes to paying off credit cards, what, what school of thought do you subscribe to? Is it better to pay off, the highest balance credit cards or the highest interest rate credit cards, regardless of balance? Well, and I touched on that in my last answer, but to reiterate, yeah. 
we have software programs. Actually, let me back up just to kind of give a macro view of this. There's three different parties involved, all beginning with the letter C. You got people like you and I that are called consumers. We do business with creditors, whether it's Capital One, Wells Fargo, whoever it may be. And those creditors report about us consumers each month to credit bureaus. Of course, there's three of them. There's Experian, TransUnion, Equifax. The right. credit bureaus exist to do two things. They, number one, they compile data from the creditors about us consumers. Number two, they run all that data through this computerized algorithm and out pops a score at the very end of it. The algorithm is not going to change, but if we can change the data the proper way, we can predict the outcome of what the score is going to be with these software programs that we have access to through our company, AmeriFirst Financial, that helps us get predictability where if we altered certain, what we call trade lines, certain accounts, a certain way with, at a time where nothing else around us changed, we can predict with pretty good certainty what the score will be. And so it okay. does help to go through me in that situation because we have access to the data and we can see what will specifically move the needle, if you will, in terms of score. Okay. No, that makes sense. So, I mean, that's, it's another reason why before you go doing anything, um, it's good to talk to a lender that you trust because you can create the best plan under your current circumstances. Um, the other thing I want to touch on is, uh, well, actually, uh, I'm going to take a moment to, to remind people that when you're in the middle of a refi or uh, you're purchasing a home, uh, the last thing you want to do is go out and take out extra lines of credit or purchase anything like a car or the furniture. I had a client do this once. They were so happy they got an offer accepted. They went out and bought all the furniture for the house and just totally threw their uh, debt to income ratio sideways. Um, can you speak on that a little? Because we've both been down that road. I th well, yes. And I think every uh, seasoned loan officer has at least one story that, uh, firsthand about the client who bought the car while they were in escrow. And um, it's, it's not a pretty thing. So. <laughs> when you get approved, we have essentially taken a snapshot of you and approved you based on nothing else changing. We're not done looking at you when we get you pre-approved. And I'll say that again, we are not done looking at you when right. we get you pre-approved. In fact, at the very end of the actual escrow period, when you're about to get loan documents or about to fund that loan, lenders do what's called a credit refresh. Mm. It's not necessarily an inquiry that hits your score, but it's another peak under the hood, if you were, will, to see if anything has changed. If we see a credit inquiry from Porsche Financial, that's not a good thing. You may have a $1,000 plus uh, payment about to hit your debt to income ratio. And if we see that certain credit cards have gone up in balance, we have to recalculate the payment associated with that higher balance. Remember, all credit card payments are predicated on your balance. If we evaluated you when your Capital One account had a $1,000 balance, and now it has a $9,000 balance. Well, we have to calculate the new payment. If that new payment pushes you outside the limits of your debt to income ratio uh, portion of your approval, you've just nullified your approval. Yeah. So, and it, it goes beyond that, and I won't open up this Pandora's box because this could be an hour long answer in itself. That also goes with changing your job, changing your profile. I had one nightmare story where somebody went from a full-time status, say, we'll just say making $25 an hour to a 
what she thought was a promotion making $32 an hour, but she went from guaranteed hours to what they call per diem or an independent contractor status. Right. She had no guaranteed hours. So we literally can give her at that point, zero income. Oh. And, and, you know, and I, you know, <laughs> that's a tough <laughs> one. I, of course I said, well, can you get your old job back? And you know, that's, but that's, these are situations where I have people who've retired after they've gotten their pre-approval letter thinking that they were done being evaluated. So Mm. An open line of communication with your loan officer, no matter who you use. That's one thing that when you're using some of these dot coms or these total strangers who you just heard a jingle on the radio for and you decide to call them and you don't remember the person's name, you're really running a risk by not having an open dialogue with your mortgage professional. And these are situations where assumptions can get the, the worst of us if we're not careful as consumers. Agreed. Um, you know, a question that gets, it's funny, <laughs> you know, um, I, you know, when you raise kids, they, they're always testing the boundaries. Like, well, what can I, what can I get away with? And I, and, and with no insult intended, sometimes clients are like kids and they're, well, if I can't buy the furniture and I can't buy a car, how about if I lease a car? Um, so, but so they'll, they'll come up with all these different scenarios, but what you're talking about essentially is anything that's going to change the snapshot you took when you pre-approved them. It, um, is a no-no until the loan process is complete and either the refi is done or the, the, the keys to the house are in your hand. Correct. Okay. For the most part, you want to freeze your profile. And I really recommend, and again, this is not to be self-serving or promote just myself, but no matter who you end up working with, make sure you can go into their office, sit down with them, have a face-to-face conversation, look them in the eye. It's amazing how much more information gets disseminated during these face-to-face meetings. I had one yesterday. It was a two-hour and 20-minute meeting. These are people who have bought in four different houses in the past, but they wanted to get kind of re, uh, refocused on what the current guidelines were, the current protocols were. So there's something to be said for old-fashioned business. Shake the hand of the person that you're doing business with. Look, at, look he or she in the eye. This is the single largest financial transaction you're probably going to ever encounter in your life. Why are you going to a total stranger who's just a name on a screen? There's danger when doing that. Understood. You know, one question that popped in my head when you were explaining this last section was, is this predicated on somebody's income? Like if somebody, let's just say someone has a substantial amount of money, um, are they less susceptible to running out and buying the, the car or the furniture during escrow than the person that's a little more, you know, check to check? <laughs> behavior patterns are independent of financial. Uh, I, I'm sure there's people on dating websites that can really attest to that, that you, you <laughs> can label across the board, any one person based on any one factor. Uh, it, it really depends. I think on coachability. If someone will just allow themselves to be coached during this time by a professional who will tell them what to do and what not to do and not make assumptions or kind of be defiant, if you will, as some children, you know, in, in your, previous analogy can be just be coachable it, but yeah right. it, it, there's no um there's no economic status that prevents somebody from making a silly mistake okay um we're gonna pick up uh after the break um at this time uh we're gonna take a pause so that we can let our wonderful sponsor identify themselves uh jonathan i'm gonna turn things over to you oh thanks uh it's been a fascinating conversation. So we're going for a break, folks. We'll be back in a second. 
Do you want quality leads from homeowners and buyers right in your own neighborhood? Then you need MailRight. It is a powerful but easy-to-use online marketing system that uses Facebook to generate real estate leads at a fraction of the cost you'd pay from our competition. We stand behind our work with a no-question-asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So don't delay. Get started today. Go to mail-right.com. We're coming back. We've got my co-host, Got a fantastic guest. What more can he ask for? What more can you ask? <laughs> you, Thomas. Okay. Um, before I press on, Jonathan, did you want to uh, have any questions at this point? Yeah, I've got a couple. We'll um, go I'm going to say a dreaded word to you, uh, um, Jason. Self-employment, you know, being self-employed. <laughs> <laughs> um, got any um, tips? Um tricks or just general advice about people that are self-employed trying to get a, a loan a house loan well once upon a, i appreciate your question jonathan once upon a time that was a non-factor and it seems like when the market crashed about 10 ish years ago we as a lending industry in general we turned our back on those people who are creating jobs for our society who have the the bravery and the gumption to go about it on their own and i think we are absolutely failing as an industry that population. So that's what, that's a tough one for me because I have a real soft spot for the entrepreneurial spirit. And um, so the, the real issue t- tends to come in two ways. Number one, until you have been self-employed for two full years, you're kind of invisible in terms of any credibility in the eyes of the lenders. And it's not me speaking about how I feel about you. It's how the lenders feel in general about a self-employed borrower, because statistically speaking, if, in, if a business is going to fail, it will do so in those first two, uh, two years, so the first 24 months. So once you pass that hurdle, we generally want to see two years of federal tax returns to get an idea of what income you have. And what's tough about that is this double-edged sword. Our accountant, our CPA, tells us to write off as many expenses as possible. Right. It's not what you make, it's what you keep with Uncle Sam. So you may gross $100,000 in revenue, but have a very good CPA who finds $80,000 worth of expenses. And it's a good news, bad news thing. The good news is you're only paying income taxes on 20,000. The bad news is guess what the lender wants to use for your income, $20,000. And here in San Diego, that's not going to buy you a whole lot. Um, And of course the two year window to look at you to see what your trajectory is. Are you ramping up or are you kind of coming down? Did you have a good year followed by a bad year? Because they're looking ahead to see what they can predict in the future about your income and really what your ability to pay that mortgage back is going to be in terms of cash flow. Now, there are some programs that are going a little bit creative, if you will, and that's kind of my world. I love the creative nature, and I think Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and FHA, which is HUD, and and VA tend to not really have a lot of creativity, but we have certain programs, certain proprietary programs where we can use, for example, bank statements to show maybe 6, 12, 24 months worth of bank statements and isolate a focus on the deposit amounts within those bank statements to see what the true cash flow is. Okay. Now they're not going to count transfers or things like that, but they're going to look at what the deposits are. And in many cases, give you a pretty good um, favorable consideration to see that there's money coming in every month. So they're watching okay. the trend. They are, but those programs are, they're not, you know, the Fannie Freddie FHA VA program. So they're not going to be priced in terms of rates and fees as competitively. Um, I always say the old adage with, with lending, even back in the old days, it's like Vinny and Rocco in the back alley. 
how bad do you want the money? Right. You know, so if you can't qualify for anybody else, you're going to pay, you know, the, the big bucks. So the, you know, the more we start going off the beaten path to find ways to qualify someone, the less lenders there are, that are going to do those loans. And, mm-hmm. and there's less lenders. Those lenders can command a premium for what they call risk based pricing. And, you know, they're still good rates. They're still good, but I just want to make sure our viewers and our realtors who are guiding those viewers are not looking at the, the billboard or the, the the little jingle on the radio in terms of quoting a rate and yet using that rate with someone who has the inability to qualify for the mainstream programs. Yeah. I've got a quick follow through question. Um, does the deposit, um, if you're going to put like a 40 to 50% deposit on the property, does that change the situation? Overall? Yes, but doesn't really change it with, with Fannie and Freddie. So historically, borrowers have been judged for mortgage loans on three categories in no particular order. Category one is the credit, which is the credit history, the credit score. Category two is the debt to income ratio, the cash flow. And category three is the loan to value, the equity, we call the skin in the game. You know, the more skin in the game you have as a down payment, the less likely you are as a borrower to walk away from that loan if you have a disruption in income or an increase in expense or some kind of hardship most people with a lot of skin in the game will just sell their house, pay off the loan in full and walk away and everyone's happy and they move forward. So in the pre-crash days, you know, in the, two, in the 2000s and before that, if you had a very sizable down payment, the banks would more or less ignore your cash flow. Well, we all saw what happened 10 years ago when we didn't verify cash flow and people's capacity to repay these loans. We had a global meltdown for lack of a better term. So now, the hypersensitivity has re reemerged in terms of cash flow. So I have people out there putting 40% down who can't qualify for a Fannie Freddie program. And that's, that is, that's a tough one. Yeah. Or telling someone with that kind of money that they don't qualify for a loan. However, we have creative methods though. If someone has that much of a down payment, they generally have a lot of assets. There's different ways that we can use someone's liquid assets to overcome a deficiency on the debt to income ratio category of the qualifications. And uh, again, that's a huge Pandora's box that we won't have time to open and I won't have time to to properly explain. But, you know, if you have borrowers, if you have clients who have a sizable amount of money in cash, but maybe maybe they're retired, maybe they're, you know, not with a lot of cash flow, they're not necessarily precluded from getting a mortgage loan. Have them get, get hold of me. Um, you know, I want to piggyback on Jonathan's question because he brought up entrepreneurs and self-employment. But the, the other category I see people uh, make assumptions that don't always go the way they think is rental property owners, where they want to use the fact that they have income coming off their rental property. But um, if they're newer in that business, that doesn't always help them. Can you explain the rule on income property? Well, it goes back to those words, it depends. So, right. so with a self-employed borrower, more often than not, we have a Schedule C, which is a profit and loss, uh, where it shows up top of the income coming in, followed by all the expenses, itemized below, and then down below you see the, the net income. A very similar phenomena exists for rental properties where we have a Schedule E, as in Edward. And so that's basically a rental uh, cash flow statement where you have the rents received in total up on top, followed by all these different expenses that have gone in, ending from your mortgage interest to you know, repairs that you may have made, uh, in some cases, HOA dues that you've paid. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now there is a book expense called depreciation, which is a beautiful thing for rental property owners because it's essentially, it's a gimme. You know, their roof is one year old or everything is one year older. It's one year less valuable. Um, and so that helps you more often than not as a rental property owner, reduce the income, the, the taxable income on that property. Uh, it's, it's important for all of us to know as, as consumers and real estate professionals that we don't hit the borrower for depreciation. So we add that back. Sometimes okay. that can be $10,000 depending on the property itself and what's gone on. But that, you know, my, my ongoing theme here is let's not try to be amateur doctors and diagnose the patient by just jumping on some website or going right. by here today. Let's go to the professional. Not that I'm a doctor, but in that, in that metaphor, go to the professional, go to somebody who can really speak about each on a, each situation on a case by case basis. Assumptions kill our industry on all sides. But I mean, in general though, is it, I mean, is it a general rule that you want to see that, that they've been collecting rent for at least a, a year or two years or what, what's the, is there an average length of time? Normally a year is a the year. benchmark to show that, but, but even that is not necessarily going to be an issue. Okay. You know, it, it really, it really depends on the situation. I mean, if someone has a primary residence, we'll call it property A, and they're going to go buy property B as a rental, and property B has to say $1,000 a month in rents received as verified by an appraiser via a rental survey as part of the appraisal, right. we're going to give that borrower 75 cents in the dollar. So we're going we're to give them a 750 income, even if that's their first rental property with no history whatsoever. So okay. I, I don't want to dissuade people from buying rental property because they're going because they're making assumptions that they can't qualify because they have no history. It's like applying for a job and no one wants to hire you because you have no, no, no experience. No experience. Well, yeah. how do I get a job? Right. <laughs> so yeah, again, consult with a mortgage professional on that, but yeah, that's not necessarily going to hurt you in terms of getting a rental property. Okay, cool. Hey, I want to shift gears a little and go to a basic, but, um, I, I in 2017, I can't believe I'm still dealing with, um, agents turning in pre-qualified letters versus pre-approval letters on my listings. And, um, I, and I, I realize this can be Pandora's box, but maybe let's just touch on like maybe two or three key points on the difference between a pre-approved borrower and a pre-qualified borrower. Okay. So this answer is for California only and realize that in different states, people call different, they have different definitions for these. So in California, we have a pre-qualification versus a pre-approval. A pre-qualification is essentially tell me, don't show me. Mm. Go ahead and complete my online application, answer some questions verbally or on a handwritten application. And me as a lender says, well, based on what you told me but didn't show me, this is what you can do. Well, that'd be great if not for the fact that at some point we're going to have you show us. Right. If there's a deviation between what you told us and what you showed us, then every previous dialogue is nullified. And so as real estate professionals, if you, whether helping the buyer or the seller, are relying on unverified information and then crying foul when the lender doesn't do what you want them to do, with all respect, you're part of the problem. So a pre-approval is a full vetting of the borrower. In fact, I always say a pre-approval is show me, don't even bother telling me. Let me figure it out. Right. Let me your tax returns, your W-2s, your pay stubs, your bank statements, your credit report, and let me tell you what your debt to income ratio is. Because yeah. we may have a different way of calculating your income, especially if you have commission or overtime or bonus structures. So it's absolutely imperative to 
to get pre-approved. Now a step further, and this is, I, I'll have some loan officers that maybe not, may not like this, and I apologize if I'm offending anybody, but most loan officers try to pre-approve the borrowers themselves. The problem with that is that we have to wear two distinct hats to do our job correctly. Hat number one is that public relations hat. We want everyone to like us and send right. us business. Hat number two is that risk assessment hat that says, well, no matter how much I like you, no matter how much this is the perfect house for you, you do not, do not meet guidelines of Fannie, Freddie, HUD, VA, whatever it may be. And so you've heard the expression, seeing things through rose-colored glasses. A lot of loan officers say, well, yeah, we should be okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, move forward. Go ahead. Go ahead and put that borrower in your car for the next two or three months. Um, spend countless <laughs> times looking at four-bedroom houses in La Jolla when all they can afford really is a condo in Mission Valley for two bedrooms. So, right. having, so to solve that, we have an underwriter, an actual person who only wears one hat. They don't care about pu public relations. In fact, we don't even let them talk to the public because they're not always the friendliest people, but they have no risk assessment. They dig through that file like a forensic accountant. So we get them involved early. And before my name goes on a pre-approval letter, before my signature is on a pre-approval letter anywhere, we've had a, a direct endorse or a DE underwriter pick through that file, run the DU or the LP, analyze back, you know, back information channels that you may not even be aware exist, send me basically a book report on this borrower that I can then use to pivot to different loan scenarios when talking to the borrower and or the agent. If your lender's not doing that, you're running a huge risk, not only oh, in your fiduciary yeah. responsibility as a real estate agent, but your reputation and your commissions in the future. Well, let me just share too that, um, and, and this is through uh, the pain of trial and error. And, um, you know, I have been kneecapped by both those scenarios where you're showing property to someone and you're not showing them the right property as it turns out because they're uh, pre-qualified, not pre-approved. And when they go from qual to approve, meaning stated to full documented, um, everything changes. And now all of a sudden, all that time you spent as an agent uh, has been wasted. And you've kind of, you've, you've t done a number on their, their joy for the process because now you've teased them with all these properties they're never going to afford. And on the flip side, I've been there where uh, we uh, thought everything was good. We're in escrow and underwriting comes back and says, hey, loan denied. And we're in escrow. And we've spent money on inspections and appraisals and they, they can see their, their Christmas in that house coming up and now it's just dashed. And I mean, and this is one of the reasons why I like working with you because I've actually, as a listing agent, had to bring you in on deals to save the, the, the buyer uh, from losing the house um, and they're not even my client, but the, the agent that brought them in um, didn't do their due diligence on this borrower and they're running around showing property that they shouldn't, but you've been able to save the day uh, on occasion. I mean, not, I won't paint uh, a pretty picture. Some of them we've tried really hard and it just wasn't going to happen. Um, this kind of brings up the cross qualify phenomenon that we're seeing probably since about 2007 in California, where a lot of listing agents are saying, Hey, that's great. You want to write us an offer, but we're going to make you cross qualify your a buyer or borrower um, with our lender too to make sure that cousin Larry didn't just crank out a, a pre-approval letter that has no validity to it. Um, can you speak on that a little bit? Absolutely. Well, the cross-approval phenomena really 
kind of originated in, in, in popularity with new, new construction, new builders. So you have KB Homes or Horton, whoever it may be, who says, look, before I customize this pile of dirt to your specifications, mm. I want to make sure that you can actually perform on your loan. And so what's very, very important, and if you only hear one thing in this entire podcast out of my, my voice here, lenders or nobody can force you to use a certain lender right. to, to create that loan. Now, they can have you get vetted. But if anybody on the listing agent side is saying, well, hey, if your client wants this house, you better do your loan with Susie at WeDoLoans.com, they are steering. They are violating the terms of, of the real, uh, California Bureau of State License. Let's mention Susie in this example here is violating some code in her NMLS license. So they can vet the borrower, but they can't make you get the loan through the borrower. Now, put on your buyer's agent hat for a moment here. It's a danger to have your borrower slash buyer speaking with more than one lender because we don't know what that other lender is going to say to that borrower. We don't know what competency and we're just going to call her Susie here, how much she's going to give proper information or not proper information mm -hmm. and or she may try to steal the deal or, or make some outlandish rate quote just to pull them off the streets. There's a danger in that. So as someone like me who is working with a buyer, I can speak with Susie on behalf of our borrower. I can get authorization from our borrower to share a certain documentation with that, what they call that preferred lender and take that conversation on just by ourselves. That way our borrower does not get caught in the crossfire. I show the preferred lender what he or she wants to, to look at and we're, we're good to go. And on the flip side, I am that Susie on many occasions. In fact, right. many, many agents, including yourself, have asked me to look over buyers. And so um, I even had a website I created because I was getting so many phone calls on weekends, especially during football season. People want to know, hey, who are you? What do I have to give you? How do I get, how do I get it over to you? So I created a website, crossapproval.com, with a checklist on there. And the reason I bring that up is my goal on that is to be really a friendly person. Hey, I'm not here to steal you from your, you know, your lender. We're here to just to vet you in terms of making sure that you can perform if indeed your your um, offer is you know, it's considered, but uh, there's a good way and a bad way to do most things. There's a lot of bad, bad actions being taken on the cross approval side. So I'd say tread lightly and be aware as agents uh, and protect yeah. your borrowers or your buyers. Yeah. I mean, that's my policy when in doubt, I just, I, I have you talk directly to their lender. I don't want my client talking to them for the, exactly the reasons you stated. Um, and you know, one question that you brought up, um, new construction, cause I, you know, now I've seen the cross qualify enter the resale world, um, since the depreciated market, because now people aren't trusting lenders as much as they did. Um, but what about these new construction lenders that, you know, they, they have these enticements, they go, well, you know, we'll do $10,000 worth of upgrades or um, we'll paint your condo custom if you go with our lender or you get the first um, year of HOA fees comped if you go with our lender. I mean, how do they, how are they able to do that? Well, I'm going to be very careful and very diplomatic in this answer. We have a lot of builder relationships at Amerifirst Financial and I certainly don't want to jeopardize any of those. But if you look at it from a revenue perspective and, and just from a business, put on your business owner hat for a moment, no matter who you are listening to this. When you, when a consumer goes to purchase a new construction, there are several different profit centers that are present. You've got the actual resale or the sale of the home between what it costs to build it and what they're going to sell it for in the open market. That's a revenue source. You have the upgrades. 
those design centers. You know, there's definitely some profit built in those design centers, as I'm sure you can imagine. You've got the lender, you've got the title and escrow companies. They all kind of circle the wagons and try to prevent any outside professionals from being part of the party, if you will. When you go to a outside lender, a lender that's not involved in the process of that, those wagons being circled, there's just one revenue center. And so sometimes you can take a loss on revenue center A and make it up on revenue center B. And, you know, but also a lot of times it goes back to the usual, hey, we're going to mark it up before we mark it down. Yeah. Nordstrom's or any department store, and hey, it's a 70% off sale. Yeah, but the day before they marked up the prices by 50%, you yeah. know, or whatever it may be. And so um, there's a lot of different ways consumers can be duped in a rate quote, and that is a Pandora's box. And I'm definitely not saying that people are, are doing the duping because they're in that new construction element, but I do, you know, just as an experienced professional, been, been at this since 1991, I know how the duping occurs. I, I can help someone make an apples to apples comparison. Mm-hmm. And I see people all the time say, well, I'm getting a $5,000 credit from my, from my um, preferred lender at, at the builder's office. Well, yeah, but they're giving you a rate that's going to be a quarter percent markup with that quarter percent markup. That's, you know, $6,000 markup we could have in rebate for your same loan. We can use that to offset those costs or whatever that the, maybe not quarter percent, but you can kind of get the picture of that. Right. No, you bring up a great point because I mean, what you have to look at is what is, what is this perk costing you long-term? Is it really worth the, the perk? I mean, is fresh paint on the wall worth paying a quarter point over 30 years more? Yeah. So. Yeah, I, think that, I think that's a great point. I think we need to wrap this up, Thomas, and then uh, have a little bit of bonus content. Yes, uh, we and we. I have a couple um, questions. I'm anxious for J- Jason to answer on our bonus content. So um, we're going to be signing off the podcast uh, audio portion, but um, join us over on YouTube, folks, uh, for a few more minutes with Jason Gordon of AmeriFirst. And speaking of our guest, I want to give Jason a chance to let people know how to reach out to him. So, uh, Jason, uh, will you sign off? Um, and give people uh, some contact info. Absolutely. Again, my name is Jason Gordon, G-O-R-D-O-N. You can visit me at gordonmortgage.com. Let's make our compliance officers happy by me giving you my NMLS number, which is 259027. And uh, if you want to email me, jgordon at amerifirst, that's A-M-E-R-I-F-I-R-S-T dot U-S, like United States. So jgordon at amerifirst dot U-S. And my direct phone number is 619-200-8031. And I'm all over social media. I'm one of those few lenders that actually has their own Yelp page. So you can <laughs> me on Jason Gordon. That shows you how accountable I am to what I do. I'm on LinkedIn as a, a Facebook business page, Jason Gordon Mortgage, Active Rain, you name it. I'm, I'm all over the place. Google Jason Gordon Mortgage and you'll see plenty of ways to get hold of me. Nice. And we'll have your contact info up on the uh on the show notes as well. Uh, Jonathan, would you please let people know how they can reach you for MailRite? Oh, thanks, Thomas. It's quite simple, folks. You can get me on my private Twitter feed. That's at Jonathan Denwood. You can go to the MailRite Facebook page. Um, you'll find all the videos, conversations on there, um, plus some content that comes from MailRite. So you'll be able to view what we supply our customers. And you can go to the YouTube channel, like Thomas mentioned before. All the videos are there with bonus content. It's getting a lot more views than it used to. Um, They're the main ways you can see more about the show and myself, Thomas. Back to you. 
Thank you, Jonathan. And I'm Thomas J. Nelson, residential realtor here in beautiful San Diego, California, where I'm never too busy for your referrals or to help you as a resource. So if you want to network or if you have Q&A or you want to do the old fashioned thing and buy a house and join the American dream, I'm here to help you do that. Uh, You can find me on social media, thomasjnelsonrealtor.com or I'm old school. You can call me. I actually answer my phone at 858-232-8722. Thanks for joining us on this episode. And we look forward to your comments as well as your downloads. Please download our show. As you comment and download our show, it lifts our popularity and gives us the opportunity to invite great guests like Jason Gordon um, because they see the value in our show and our wonderful audience. Uh, We're going to jump over to YouTube and some bonus content now, so we hope you join us there, folks. But uh, if you're signing out on the audio portion, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Mm -hmm.